Welcome to the ACAM Sanction Space podcast. I am Justine Walker, Global Head of Sanctions, Compliance and Risk. Joining me today is Peter Harrell. Well, where to start on Peter's background? Well, currently he is a non-resident fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a sanctions attorney. But he has a really extensive background. He was, until really fairly recently, Senior Director for International Economics and Competitiveness on the White House National Security Council, has served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Counter-Threat Finance and Sanctions in the State Department, is a former adjunct senior fellow at the Center for New American Security. So really, today, we are joined by an expert in both the whole realm of US economic statecraft, sanctions, export controls, trade policy. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. Peter, you and I have liaised for many years on many topics. I think it's only right that we start off with Russia as we move into 2024, because today's podcast is going to be about what can people expect throughout the year. Next month will mark two years since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Now, just ahead of the invasion, so really nearly two years ago now, you spoke at the ACAM's Global Sanctions Summit. And I remember doing that recording with you and I had shivers going down my spine because, you know, just the seriousness of what you were talking about at a time when a lot of us couldn't really visualize what was going to happen over the coming weeks and months. But you used a phrase there, which everybody still refers to now. You said if Russia invades, sanctions will start high and stay high. That certainly happened. As we now approach the second anniversary, what does 2024 look like in terms of Russian sanctions environment and what does stay high now look like for 2024? Justine, that's a a great question. And I think it's a great time to be talking about this. As you said, uh, we are two years into dealing with Russia's uh, full-on invasion of Ukraine. I think the good news here, at least from an American perspective, is that the US and the G7 and its other partners around the world really remain fully committed to the economic line of pressure that we have brought to bear against Russia over the last two years. And I think there are going to be a couple of areas, important areas to watch uh, for sanctions on Russia in 2024. I think the first of those is really going to be implementation of Executive Order 14114. That's the new executive order that President Biden signed a couple of weeks ago in December 2023 that authorizes the Treasury Department to impose secondary sanctions on foreign financial institutions, non-American banks and other financial institutions that engage in significant transactions with certain Russian SDNs uh, and also that facilitate transactions related to the provision of defense and and technology uh, materiel to Russia. Um, I think this is really a pretty significant expansion of U.S. sanctions authorities, and it really gives the United States a tool to go after banks in countries like Turkey and the countries in the Caucasus, banks in countries like China, where you might see some of these banks uh, engaging in 
significant transactions with Russian SDN. So I think watching implementation of EO 14114 and exactly who gets targeted under that EO is going to be an important space to watch. I think there's also going to be an interesting question um, over the course of the year about whether that executive order gets expanded to allow secondary sanctions against companies other than banks, you know, for example, shipping and logistics companies that might be taking defense-related material from a country like China or from a country in the Caucasus or from a country like the UAE to Russia. But that's not the focus now. The focus is obviously starting uh, with banks. I'm also watching what happens with the price cap. Over the last couple of months, we have seen the Treasury Department, the U.S. Treasury Department, kind of tiptoe into secondary sanctions related to the price cap on Russian oil, where they have sanctioned non-American companies that have used Western services like insurance to ship Russian oil above the price cap. But so far, the administration has not embraced kind of a full-on secondary sanction that would go after, say, refiners in India that import oil above the price cap. They've kind of stayed focused on individuals using Western services. I think it'll be interesting to see how their approach on the price cap evolves. And I I wouldn't be surprised if we see some more aggressive expansion uh, of authorities related to the price cap. And then the final area I'm really watching this year, and there's been some recent news, news reporting on this issue, is what the U.S. and the G7 do with frozen Russian assets. I think that there is growing interest not only in Washington but across the G7 and and other allies in, in actually moving towards seizing Russian assets and using some of those assets to support uh, Ukraine. That's obviously a very legally and, and policy complicated issue, but I think you can see very serious interest across both Washington and a number of allied capitals in figuring out ways to actually seize that money uh, and use it to support Ukraine uh, in 2024. Clearly, there's a lot to think about then for 2024. And one of the areas that you've already started to put out on the table is around the focus on third countries not to cooperate with Russia, especially not to cooperate in the field for industrial supplies and technology cooperation. How does the US and the allies make this successful? What's the best case scenario here? What does that really look like? Well, I think the first thing to say about this is, you know, we really have over the last year and change seen uh, Russia step up its efforts to source products that it can no longer source from the U.S. and from U.S. allies from third countries. So we've seen a, you know, a big increase in trade between Turkey and Russia, between the UAE and Russia, between China and Russia, between a number of the countries in the the Caucasus and and Russia, uh, and other countries in Russia, the countries kind of outside the G7 plus uh, coalition. And so I think it is totally natural that the U.S. and its allies would begin to focus uh, on these countries where we've seen major increases in trade as Russia tries to circumvent the G7 sanctions. I think that, you know, the U.S. and its allies are really going to take a a two-part approach to getting countries on board, and then there's also a big role from the the private sector. I think from the government approach, we're going to see two things. We're going to see engagement. We're already seeing engagement in recent months where we've had 
senior officials, uh, not just from the U.S. system, but from a number of G7 capitals go to the Middle East, go to Kazakhstan, go to Kyrgyzstan, frankly, go to China uh, as well, going to Turkey, going to other countries where we've seen these trade increases to talk about the challenges this is posing to the sanctions and to talk about how to identify um, potential sanctions evasions. We've seen an engagement-oriented uh, approach. And then the other thing we're beginning to see that I think we're going to see more of is, is consequences for companies that continue to engage in that trade. So we've seen the engagement. We're going to continue to see engagement. But I do think we're going to see more and more designations of facilitators uh, of this kind of trade in these third third countries as a way of trying to dry up the market and getting other companies uh, to get out of actually providing those kinds of uh, services and support to Russia. As I said, I think there's also a huge role for the private sector. I think, you know, we've seen OFAC, we've seen FinCEN, we've seen uh, the G7 uh, as a whole publish a number of kind of compliance guidance notes uh, where they are trying to put out information to help companies identify red flags, identify typologies of evasion. And I think that we're going to continue to see the government try to provide additional guidance information for the private sector to up its uh, compliance protocols. One thing I should note on the private sector role, because I do think it's an important uh, issue. You know, I mentioned a couple of minutes ago EO 14114, the new Russia sanctions EO. There's an interesting development in that EO, which imposes secondary sanctions on non-U.S. banks that engage in uh, certain significant transactions with Russian SDNs, which is it, it doesn't necessarily require that the banks know they engaged in those those transactions. And that's a departure from past practice. The U.S. has traditionally only imposed secondary sanctions against banks and companies that kind of knew they were doing something wrong here. That knowledge element is no longer a formal prerequisite for sanctions. And I think what the government is doing there is sending a very clear message to the private sector that the private sector needs to be upping its due diligence game and can't simply avoid sanctions if it is kind of willfully blind to what's going on with respect to trade and transactions with Russia. And Peter, I'm so glad you sort of set that bit out because one of the things, you know, just to let listeners know that this month they're going to see a mitigating the risk of sanctions evasion toolkit that we've been working on for the past few months here at ACAM. So that's going to be on our platform in the coming probably two weeks time. So that's something for people to look at. But before we leave the Russia landscape, you were so influential in the policy thinking around Russia over many years, actually. And I just really want to ask you very quickly. So, you know, two minutes. What surprised you the most over the past two years of the Russian sanctions developments? You know, what has really stood out to you? So I think two things have surprised me, one of which is a good news story, which is the level of Western allied unity on this issue. You know, if you'd, you'd asked me two months before the invasion, would we have the level of sustained allied commitment to and cooperation on Russian sanctions for two years? I would have said, no, that seems unlikely. But, but it, it's really heartening how unified key allies around the world have been to putting pressure on Russia on a sustained basis here. So I think that's a good news uh, surprise. 
The other surprise has really been, and you know, I got to give credit to the adversary uh, here. Uh, Russia, I think, has been surprisingly effective in its own macroeconomic response. You know, it came up with some policy tools to try to blunt the immediate impact of the sanctions and has really, you know, tried to bail out its companies and bail out its workers. Now, I don't think Russia can maintain these kind of macro successful macroeconomic policy responses forever. They're going to run out of their reserves. I think we're seeing a drag on industrial production. But I do think it's been interesting to see how a you know reasonably sophisticated government like Russia has been able, at least in the kind of short and midterm, to partially blunt some of the impacts that we might have expected initially on the sanctions. Peter, let me change themes slightly because there is an, another area that I really want to talk to you about, and that's the whole scope around geopolitical competition, because you've spoken a lot around this. And, you know, you specifically highlighted strategic trade and technology are major areas of the future, you know, geopolitical landscape and strategic competition. So thinking about this, I want to ask about the US-China relationship in 2024. What does that in your eyes look like? I think that's a great question, and I know it is very much on the minds of um, both compliance professionals around the world and also, frankly, uh, boards and you know senior management uh, at global companies around the world. And I think for understandable reasons. I mean, these are the two largest uh, economies in the world. Huge amounts of global trade uh, are at stake, and it's been a pretty rocky relationship over the last uh, couple of years. Over the last couple of months, and I think we're going to continue to see this over the next couple of months, there have been significant efforts by both President Biden and his administration and by President Xi and the Chinese government to try to stabilize the relationship. You know, we saw the summit between Xi and Biden uh, out in California a couple of months ago. We've seen a substantial increase in the pace of visits between Washington and Beijing. And I think These efforts really reflect a desire on both sides to make sure that the relationship does not further deteriorate, kind of inadvertently slip into outright conflict. I think importantly, though, it doesn't, these efforts don't mean we're going to get back to the relationship the way it was, you know, eight or nine years ago. I think it is a a structurally much more difficult uh, relationship than it was eight or nine years ago, and it's going to continue to be bumpy over the next year during 2024, despite these efforts to stabilize it. And and here I just highlight two different uh, factors. You know, the first uh, coming up this spring, we see elections in Taiwan. I think there's a potential for a fairly negative uh, Chinese reaction to those elections in Taiwan. We saw President Xi make some pretty hawkish statements about Taiwan just over the last couple of weeks. And I think that obviously if there is um, an adverse uh, Chinese uh, reaction to Taiwan, that doesn't necessarily mean an invasion, but that might mean economic pressure on Taiwan. That might mean, you know, sort of stepped up military drills. That's going to create additional friction uh, in the Sino-U.S. relationship. And then on on this side of the Pacific, here here in the U.S., we are obviously getting into a presidential election in a major way this year in which China is going to be a major, perhaps the major foreign policy topic. And so there's going to be a lot of political noise uh, around China here in Washington this year. And that is really, I think, going to add to the, the stress on the relationship. I think the best case scenario that we can hope for 
is what I've been talking about is kind of just managing the relationship. The relationship is going to be bumpy. We're going to see export controls. We're going to see probably some targeted sanctions. We may see some movement on the trade side. So there are going to be frictions. I think what we can hope for is that both sides will try to figure out a way to just kind of manage through the bumps in the relationships. And so while there will be challenges and while there will be bumps, at a sort of strategic level, the relationship will remain broadly stable. At least that's the hope. So expanding a little bit on the political noise, because you put that also on the table, congressional focus. You know, we're certainly seeing that they're ramping up their China oversight efforts. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of noise in, in that arena. And I suppose my question and what I would really like to understand is, you know, what's going to be the areas of strongest congressional interest in the months ahead? Is it going to be cutting edge technology? Is it trade? Is it forced labor? What's really driving their interest? Well, the first thing I'd comment for some of your audience around the world, if they haven't had a chance to read it yet, the U.S. House of Representatives has a committee on China focused on U.S. competition with China. And they actually, late last year, uh, put out a report on technological and economic competition with China with like 150 recommendations in it. Now, let's be very clear. Congress is not in an election year going to adopt anything like 150 recommendations uh, on China. But I do think the report is a useful read to give compliance uh, officers and to give executives, corporate executives around the world, kind of a comprehensive sense of what are the major issues that Congress sees uh, in the U.S.-China relationship. And over a couple of years, what are the kinds of things that the U.S. Congress might push for? And this is a bipartisan report that uh, a couple dozen, both Democrats and Republicans, who'd been tasked by their respective leadership to put together. So I do think it reflects kind of a, a fairly broad consensus in the U.S. Congress. Just to highlight a couple of things, there is, Justine, enormous interest in the U.S. Congress in the tech sector and technology competition. You know, there is concern that Despite all the export controls the U.S. has put on semiconductor exports to China, the U.S. hasn't gone far enough. And I think we're likely to see some congressional pressure to do more on semiconductor uh, exports. Export controls on artificial intelligence, very complicated, but another area that I think we're going to see Congress uh, put pressure on. And does that mean, you know, sort of export controls on language uh, models to China? Does that mean maybe Chinese AI firms on the entity list? A little bit hard to know exactly where that lands, but I think the AI in this tech competition, in addition to semiconductors, is going to be a big area of focus. The second big area that I think we're going to see Congress focus on is further restrictions on American investment in China. Obviously, the Biden administration has started a process to regulate U.S. investment in a handful of high-tech sectors uh, in China, but there's appetite in Congress to go beyond that. I'm, I'm not sure Congress will succeed in passing something on that this year, but I do think we're going to see effort in Congress to pass sort of broader investment restrictions this year that will then carry over into next year. And 
That might mean more sectors, but it might also mean, you know, there's growing support in Congress, for example, taking companies that are on the U.S. entity list, right? So these are companies Americans can't export to, and putting those companies on an investment restriction list so that Americans also couldn't invest in those companies. So I, I think we'll see some continued debate about those uh, kinds of ideas as well. And then finally, on the trade front, I don't think Congress is going to do much on trade with China this year just because of legislative dynamics and the election season. But there is a growing interest in Congress in adopting some new legislation that would kind of further clamp down on trade flows between the U.S. and China and reduce U.S. import dependencies for certain critical products in China. And I think we'll see a lot of congressional debate about how to do that this year, even if I don't think anything is likely to pass on that front until after the next U.S. elections. I'm assuming the administration's policy thinking is broadly similar. Is it broadly aligned to what Congress is thinking, or are you seeing a major divide there? I think there is a, a broad alignment between the Biden administration and Congress on China, though I think the Biden administration overall is interested in a somewhat more surgical and narrow approach than many members of Congress are. I think you see that with the Biden administration's executive order from last fall on outbound investment, which really is pretty narrowly targeted. It, you know, focuses on U.S. investment in semiconductors and AI and quantum computing and only certain kinds of investments in each of those sectors, whereas there is a lot of support in Congress for also going after things like you know, industrial and automotive sector investments that American companies make in China. So I, I think there's kind of alignment on direction overall, but with the administration pretty consistently pushing for a somewhat narrower and more uh, surgical approach to managing the tech and economic competition. And just before we leave China, very quickly, industry readiness, how do they interpret all of this? What should they be most alive to in their own thinking around risk management? Well, I think a lot of companies around the world, both banks and multinationals, over the last year, year and a half, have done some stress testing to understand what would happen to them as companies if there were a major disruption in the Sino-U.S. economic relationship and the U.S. and China imposed significant sanctions uh, on each other. But if, if you're a company that hasn't done that yet, I would, uh, or maybe hasn't done that for a couple of years, I would strongly recommend you do that. Not that I think we're going to get into sort of massively escalated sanctions this year, but clearly if I'm looking at a five or six year time horizon, there is uh, some significant risk there. And it's important for companies to understand how that could affect them across their operations so that they can take some steps now to mitigate that. So I think there's going to be kind of a, a risk planning uh, element the company should continue to engage in. I, I also think, look, we're going to see more entity listings this year. We're going to see more SDN designations this year. And I think that if you're doing business in China, you really want to make sure your due diligence program on your customers, on your suppliers uh, is up and running and quite well developed because you want to make sure that you're not doing business with U.S. SDNs that could then expose you to various legal risks. So I think I think you want to continue to build out your due diligence program within China if you haven't already invested in that. 
Peter, beyond Russia and China, I want to just sort of delve into a little bit around under-the-radar sanctions and geopolitical trends that may have an impact this year. You know, what are some of the under-the-radar types of scenarios that we should be thinking about and focused upon? Well, I think we should all start by thinking about the terrorism finance uh, sanctions risks and reality. You know, I think that for many compliance departments, as well as government officials, you know, over the last couple of years, you know, Russia, China had really emerged as as front and center um, issues. Not that people ever stopped worrying about terrorist finance. People clearly did continue to worry about terrorist finance. But um, Hamas's attack on Israel uh, in October uh, and the overall uh, threat environment we've seen in the Middle East since that attack with the Houthis in Yemen attacking commercial shipping and with Hezbollah in Lebanon uh, engaging in strikes in Israel and Israel engaging in retaliatory strikes, I think have been a very sharp reminder that terrorism remains a global issue. And I think we are going to see the U.S. and a number of its allies kind of redouble efforts this year to go after terrorist financial flows. Some of that's going to target cryptocurrency. We've seen some steps uh, in that direction already. I think they'll also, you know, kind of up the tempo of targets on financial facilitators and logistics facilitators of designated terrorist groups. So I, th- I think we all need to stay focused on that core mission of keeping terrorists out of the financial system and restricting the flow of money to terrorist organizations. And that's going to be a big focus in Washington and in a number of allied capitals this year. And a parting comment. So if I asked you to sum up in 60 seconds your key sanctions prediction for 2024, what would it be? Uh, So I'll start with three things in 60 seconds. First, I think that companies should really focus on getting their due diligence protocols straight regarding Russia. We're clearly going to see a lot of enforcement of Russia sanctions this year, and companies need to be very well prepared to make sure they don't get caught up in that and they avoid helping sanctioned Russian actors. Second, we're definitely going to see noise in the U.S.-China relationship this year. But if you've done your homework and you are doing your scenario planning and your due diligence, I am uh, optimistic that it will be manageable for companies to kind of navigate that noise. And third, um, what we just talked about, Justine, stay focused on the terrorism finance risk. I think that's one that we're just going to continue to see uh, quite a bit of pressure on from the regulators over the course of 2024. Peter, thank you so much for your insights. It's been really great to have you back in the ACAMS arena. Great listening to you and hearing everything, you know, all your experience that you're able to share with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. And a reminder to listeners, if you want to know more about the themes discussed today, then tune in to our Sanctions monthly updates and masterclasses. But for now, thanks for listening and please do sign up to the Sanctions Space podcast. Thank you.